I'm Rick Ralph. As a 40-year-old veteran of the waste and recycling industry, both internationally and across Australia, in my podcast program, Talking Garbology, Waste and Recycling Unwrapped, I'll be introducing you to a wide range of industry experts, innovators, leaders, and key subject professionals, where together we will be unbundling the facts and information related to waste and recycling issues and more. Thank you for joining me. And wherever you may be listening, I hope you enjoy this podcast program. In my podcast today, we're going to talk with Nick Harford from Equilibrium. You may recall in my previous podcast with uh, China Sword and what the matters, what it required for Australia and the impacts of Australia. I thought it was uh, timely that we catch up with Nick again to just talk about post the announcement of the export bans, etc. Where have we actually landed now, 12 months on from the Chinese uh, announcement? And subsequent to that, the export ban debate and uh, the markets and COVID-19. So welcome, Nick. Welcome back. Thank you, Rick. Um, we're doing this obviously by phone because we're keeping the social distancing and so, I think our social distancing is like 1,700 kilometres away at this stage, is <laughs> That's it? That's right. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so welcome. Um, let's just uh, recap on the national sword, what that actually meant back in 2019. Nick, can you just quick give us a quick summary on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, back then, the Chinese government um, announced that they were going to introduce a, a ban on on about 24 categories of, of waste and recyclable material being imported into their country and introduced a new contamination requirement that any uh, waste or recyclables that were going to be imported had to have contamination of less than 0.5 of a percent. Uh, so in effect, Rick, uh, what it did was really um, shut off uh, a lot of access to the Chinese market from uh, companies in Australia and elsewhere around the world who were selling uh, mixed paper in particular and mixed plastics into that market. Um, and it really heralded the start of China developing its domestic market to start collecting its own recyclables and using that more and more. So it really caused a, a global shift in the trade of recyclables. And then that cascaded over into other Asian markets as well. We had we saw the changes in Vietnam, we saw the changes in Indonesia, Malaysia, everyone sort of followed suit at that point. And then we moved further on and uh, uh, I think it was late 2019, if I get my, about, about October, uh, September of last year, that um, the government made the decision that they were going to fast-track the export bans of certain commodities over the next five years and to try and re-educate and re-engineer that manufacturing uh, base in Australia. That's that's where we landed as a result of that. Uh, that's correct. The Australian government, through the Council of Australian Government, made an announcement that they were going to ban the export of certain wastes being um, mixed plastics, mixed paper, unprocessed glass and also whole tyres. So so they announced that, as you said, towards the end of 2019 and then in March 2020, they actually published some specific guidance around what that actually uh, means. So they've published definitions around what they consider to be mixed plastic uh, and mixed paper. Um, and, and with those two commodities in particular, um, the, the materials need to be sorted into the particular type. So in the case of plastic, it needs to be sorted into different polymer types. Um, and in the case of paper, it has to be sorted between uh, things such as old corrugated cardboard 
office wipes, old newsprint, those kinds of standards. So if we look at material streams by type, I mean, it's unusual. I, I thought it was quite interesting that they talked about glass. I'm not very um, familiar with too much export of glass. I'm familiar with a lot of importing of glass across Australia. In fact, I think there's more imported than there is manufactured. But uh, quite quite interesting the fact that they said unprocessed. I don't I don't get that. Do you? Uh, no, no. There are many aspects to the strategy and the decision uh, which are counterintuitive. Uh, to the industry, uh, to put it diplomatically, um, you know the fact well, is politics. Well, we won't we won't get down the political route, mate. No, well, no, and and you know, in some respects, it's an admirable decision in that the objective is to uh, try and influence and and um, and generate more local production uh, with those materials. Um, but as you know very well, you know Australia is an economy. Yeah consumes much more of this material and, and paper and plastics are a good example than it can possibly use. You know, we're still a net exporter of about 1.1 to 1.2 million tonnes of paper a year. Um, that's not going to change because there's now a ban on it. Um, that's exactly About right. half of that paper is going to be affected by the ban, but it, it means that it's going to have to be sorted more before it's exported. Well, we've done glass and I think tyres is a, a challenge which will take a a life of its own. We certainly have local markets. We've got plenty of capacity internalised to take that, and it does make sense that we're actually banning um, sending tyres off to markets which really have questionable processing. The challenge for Australia will be in plastics and in paper and cardboard. So let's just unpack those. Paper and cardboard, what do you see to be the basically opportunity and the challenges in finding that home for that volume? Um, I think that the challenge with respect to paper and cardboard is it's a globally traded commodity. And investment decisions are made uh, where there is uh, obviously, um, you know, the best conditions. So low energy costs, low labour costs and the like. And that's why we've seen paper mills, um, you know, being developed uh, across, uh, you know, Southeast Asia in particular in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Um, Australia would need to install somewhere around a million tonnes more capacity for it to be able to use up the materials that are currently being exported. And that would be a combination of what's called commons or mixed paper and uh, old corrugated cardboard. And there's less and less of old newsprint uh, these days because obviously people just aren't buying newspapers and the like. Um, but that, just touching on that million tonnes, I mean, it's not only just capacity, it's also finding a home for the output of that million tonnes because you're assuming you've got to actually place that million tonnes as a saleable product once it's been processed. Absolutely right. And if you look, Rick, at the Australia and New Zealand really as one market for pulp and paper production, um, they've been static at about three and a bit million tonnes of production for the last 10 years. Um, so there isn't uh, you know, an increased demand for the paper, even if it were to be made here. So you'd be relying on exporting the finished paper as well. And of course, you know, that's dependent upon all global trade. And while paper production globally, you know, has been increasing up until the, the start of 2020, um, given the new environment that we're in, in the coronavirus world, it's very uncertain whether there's going to be increase in global consumption. So exactly as you say, even if you were able to install the capacity, I'm not sure whether you would actually have uh, an end market to sell it into. And I think there's a bit of a confusion also because there are 
we still can move material out of Australia into markets provided it meets a quality specification. And taking the ISRI specifications, I mean, the, the, there's a standard there for scrap metal and everything, but the, if you look at the, the ISRI spec, it's across a multi-material uh, streams. Um, the challenge is, is, and we touched upon it previously, but the, the big challenge I think is not only just the market, but the system itself of collection. Um, and the curbside, because now we've got container schemes, um, well, we've got them in three states, four states, um, and we're about to have Western Australia come on stream with that too. It, it goes back to the quality of the material we're collecting in the first place. And you talk about commons and newsprint, et cetera. That's, that's r- really the system change that needs to be looked at. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, since the China sort announcement, we've had the update of the national waste policy, we've had the COAG ban. Uh, we've had Queensland, New South Wales uh, start their CDS schemes, WA, as you say, is about to, and then Tasmania and Victoria come online later in the year. Uh, we've had Victoria, under its new waste policy, announced that it's going to go to a fourth bin in curbside recycling with a, 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 a dedicated glass bin. So there are, there are lots of these changes that are going on, but you can't get away from the fundamentals, Rick, and while, yes, there are still good export markets you know, for the materials. Um, for example, with some plastics at the moment, you know, the cost of sorting them and cleaning them to a state where they would meet the 0.5% contamination, um, you know, can cost you between three and three hundred and fifty dollars a ton in terms of your conversion cost. And that's the current sale price on some of the plastics on the export market. Um, so so really, you know, you're standing still. Um, but I guess what we have seen is with curbside is that the curbside collectors and MRF operators have been going back to local government in particular and renegotiating contracts and upping their gate fees. So so that's where we see it. It's an added cost to the, the ratepayer and consumer. I guess it's admirable the federal government finally have put waste management on the radar. I mean, we, we have to give 11 out of 10 for that. And the fact that we've now got an assistant minister for waste based in Queensland but uh, in Cabinet and with a direct line to the Minister, Susan Lay. It's easy for us, everyone to sit back and say what are the problems but also I think the fact that they're going to market now for some solutions. Do you think that we will actually in this post-COVID world really understand what those opportunities are at this short time? I think they're still emerging but I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there's been outstanding leadership shown by the national government um, and all governments really in breathing new life into the national waste policy. And along with that, we're seeing individual states releasing new strategies and policies, which I think is giving greater confidence to the industries, um, you know, to invest in the future. But really, it is a little bit unknown. Um, While curbside is going strong in terms of volumes of material continuing to be what they were pre the coronavirus, um, they're having some issues with respect to contamination levels. And then in the commercial and industrial space, there's been a significant fall in the amounts of materials coming out between 20 and 30% in some cases. And that's uh, interestingly, cardboard pricing has actually increased at the moment because of the short, shortage of uh, volume. That's, it's, it's quite interesting, that whole supply-demand scenario that's actually floating around with it. That's right because there's not enough clean sorted material um, being being collected. Um, but I think the general signals, you know, are very are very good for the future of the industry. Um, uh, it's just a question, I think, of when, you know, when will be the right time for those investments. Um, yeah. You know, the Commonwealth's 
um, uh, dollar for dollar for dollar proposal to jointly fund infrastructure with the states and with industry. Uh, we'll get clarity on that in October when the federal budget comes out, I think. Um, and similar with the states that have delayed their budgets, I think we'll, we'll get a clearer picture on that later in the year. Um, uh, and the, the, the work <coughs> that's been done, as I say, by, by the states, um, is giving, you know, much more confidence to the industry. And I think, um, that we will see those investments. It's just a question of when. When, yeah, and I think you know, you, it's it's quite interesting. I, I've never seen so much talk around about waste management and recycling, and they're talking about how we can re-energize the manufacturing sector. So, I mean, the fact that politically they're actually taking that leadership is is a, a, a point we've always pushed for. If we go back to the, the scenario of uh, you touched briefly that the fourth bin in Victoria, um, very unusual decision, I have to say. I mean, the fact that we really are struggling across Australia for more glass markets. I think I, I think what the, the point that's missing in the scenario is rather than try and look at the system itself, what we're doing now is just modifying it. The, the curbside systems effectively have never been reviewed since the mid-80s, if I'm correct. They're all pretty well the same sort of thing, the 240 litre or 140 litre or 360 litre. But I think it's time now that uh, we, we don't just prop up the system with different collection systems, but I think we actually should look at the curbside system itself now that we've got container. What's your thoughts, Nick? Uh, I, I agree, Rick. Um, the container deposit schemes that have been set up fundamentally change the mix of materials that are in the curbside bin. Um, as we know, the, the types of materials that have been used for packaging and, and consumed by people you know, continue to change. Um, and the curbside system was set up, you know, at a time when it was really about, uh, you know, getting paper. Um, you know, back at, in its origins, it was really targeting paper. The advent of a separate bin for glass recycling, I, I agree, is a bit of a, a an odd decision. Um, certainly, it's an aberration. It's definitely an aberration. It, it is. You know, glass contaminates the other streams of material as we know and it gets broken in, in the trucks and and gets impregnated into the glass and causes contamination concerns and all of that. Um, but as you say, uh, you know, our, our issue is with glass is not one of a, a lack of it to use but rather a lack of use for it um, mm. because we just don't have manufacturing capacity and, you know, I see that there's a lot of discussion around putting glass into things like, you know, road base or or infrastructure projects, um, you know that that's you know possibly well and good, um, but there are other materials that are also competing to go into those types of uses. Tires, you know, is one that's commonly talked about of being being used for those same applications. So, so even those end uses are not uh, you know totally totally open. Um, yeah, but I also think it's a good question, Rick, because. What do we fundamentally want from our curbside? Um, you know, we're seeing the advent of organics bins much more widely in the food and organics uh, collection and recycling, which is a, a much bigger environmental and, and economic you know, issue for us to, to manage. So are we trying to have a curbside system that is about just an environmental outcome or is it we're also trying to supply our downstream manufacturing and other activities? 
Well, I think the, the, when we look at pro- product stewardship generally, uh, one of the uh, missing pieces in the j- jigsaw now, I mean, we, we waste streams have changed, the composition of waste streams have changed from the days when they introduced the curbside in the 80s. So we've now got a, a lot more uh, uh, throwaway items such as textiles. We've got a lot more materials with e-waste. Um, we've got fed, we've got state bans, New South Wales, uh, Victoria again, with the e-waste into landfill, et cetera. And it's very well, all well and good to have the policy objective to actually reduce and to pull this material out of the stream, but we're not actually supporting with the collection systems to actually recover it more effectively. And I would have thought that, you know, curbside is a problem with batteries. We have a real problem with lithium batteries and the fire ignition source that that creates. But is there a... Uh, is could we use curbside, change the whole system entirely and actually use it to, to go after the problem materials um, that potentially need, have new markets for new manufacturing? It's a good question. I, I don't have a short answer to it. Um, we are currently doing some work for the Australian government looking at product stewardship for batteries, for e-waste, uh, solar panels and also hazardous containers. Um, and in varying degrees, there are already systems that, that exist for the take back of some of those products, um, and and it's always a question of what is the you know most efficient and effective way to to get those materials out of the environment and into some value added use, and is that through household collection or is it through you know more drop off points? I don't I don't have a short answer as I, as I say, but I do think uh, as per your initial question, I think it is very timely have a look at what we actually want to achieve out of the curbside system. The export bans also provides an opportunity to have a look at that whole product stewardship. I see APCO um, now putting out a guidance uh, material with the org- for the organics industry in relation to compostable plastics. Frankly, from my point of view, um, until we can manage plastics in organics at the moment, it's a contamination, it's a big issue. I think from a compostable organics or compostable plastics, we're going down a a rabbit hole. I don't think we should be going down at this point in time. We've got to solve the problem in contamination before we start looking at alternate materials. Yes, I would agree. Yep, it's confused messages, isn't it? Well, it is, and I think what we're trying to do is we're we're trying to we're trying to target all material streams across a whole range of products rather than sort of just chunk it out and actually find the solution for paper and cardboard and nail it. Find the solution for plastics and nail it. Yes, we can have a horizon in the future to change the product mix that we're doing. But I don't think we're actually solving the problem fast enough and quick enough now, but we're already looking for solutions by changing the types down the track. Yes. And if you look at plastics, for example, as you'd be aware, you know, there have been some big players who have announced some, some big investments, you know, the joint venture with Clean Away, Tax Group, and, um, and uh, Tomra, um, and then Coke. the other one, Coke and Veolia. Mm. Um, but they're targeting Richard plastics and, and, and want to go to a bottle-to-bottle arrangement, um, which mm. is good, but it's only one small part of the, the plastic waste stream, and, exactly we're, right. and we're not seeing the investments in, in the other areas to, to manage those those materials. The uh, Just back to the federal process then, we've got the expression of interest out. It'll be interesting to see which states actually um, go forward with that and what the opportunities are, but... I guess the opportunity for policymakers is to not only just call for the infrastructure, and there's a lot of debate about inf- that we need more infrastructure, but actually looking at uh, the end markets for it, because that really is the that the, the key to this is having a market for the material you're collecting. And I, I think at the moment 
we're concentrating too much at the front end on processing and infrastructure. We're not looking at the back end and what we could actually do it. Yeah, I would agree. And I would add further to that, um, we have the example where Infrastructure Victoria just recently released a report and they you know, summed up the amount of material that's out there and said this is the number of new facilities that we need, um, as if by doing that, people are going to suddenly you know, want to build them. You're right. And the other piece I think we struggle with around the country is the planning and approvals issues as well. The siting and the planning and the approval for these facilities uh, can be incredibly burdensome and costly. Correct. So there, there needs to be an understanding that if we want these facilities, you know, it, it needs to be made um, you know, more accessible for, for the investments to actually be realised. That, that, that's exactly right. I mean, we talk about going to market for a paper mill or expansion of assets. I mean, just getting that through, and the bans come in, I think, 2024, um, thereabouts. You know, it's going to take to 2027 to get anything up in, under the current planning framework because you just can't build anything anywhere in our industry, anywhere in Australia, really. No, it's, it, it's very difficult. And as you would know, Rick, you know, we have new regulations coming in for the waste and recycling industries in Queensland and in Victoria in particular. Um, which, which is good and necessary because there has been some uh, unacceptable behaviour, but all of these things add to the cost and complexity of doing business. So I guess for the listeners here, I, I guess from an advocacy point of view and, and going talking to our elected representatives and policy makers, while we give them a tick for the, uh, the fact that they're actually getting off and doing something in a policy sense, it, it seems to be very linear in what we're actually trying to do. It's that certainly... There's no circular process. We're not joining the links together with planning. We're not joining the links with uh, production outputs. Um, we're certainly saying, well, we need to build it. We're going to ban it. But there's a there's a chasm in between of that building and planning and actually using the material, isn't there? Uh, there is. That, that, that's a good way to put it. But at least we're having the conversation, aren't we? Oh, I think it's, and it's absolutely. A high, and it's a higher level discussion than, than I've seen in you know, 20 or 25 years. Well, many people have been, uh, you know, many proponents have been critical of the, the lack of action. Now what we've got is action, but it's possibly happening at a rate that uh, none of us saw actually the speed of actually coming off the ground. Yep. I mean, for an announcement of a ban through to actually initiating legislation, I think it's the fastest time we've ever seen anything in our space. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well and truly. Look, Nick, thanks very much, mate. Just uh, have a bit of a chat. I thought it was worthwhile we just touch base on it since the, the China. It's not the end of the world, as everyone predicted. I think there's a huge opportunity here for it, but I think we need to start as, a, as an industry and uh, manufacturers to start thinking, what are we going to do with the product? Yeah, I think you're right. It's the other piece to the puzzle. Nick Harford from Equilibrium, thanks for joining me, mate. And uh, yeah, let's uh, have a chat about product stewardship. Um, I'd be interested to sort of explore that because you guys are the gurus at it. And... Uh, Onwards and upwards. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, mate.